Oh, good morning. Glad to see you all. Um, we'll talk about uh, the series we're in in just a second. But it's Mother's Day, uh, so it makes sense that we pause for a second and acknowledge that every single one of us in this room are here um, because someone gave birth to us, right? I mean, all of us. And uh, so in many ways, Mother's Day is this beautiful celebration. Love to celebrate my wife. Excited to be able to celebrate my mom. Really, really thankful for that. And I uh, could not imagine a world or my life without a mom in it. Which is interesting because while this is such a really, really exciting day and we want to celebrate and all those things, the, the, the reality is for a lot of us, this is a, a very painful day. Um, whether it's because you wanted to be a mom and were unable to, or because your mom's no longer on this earth and you have to wrestle with that, right? Um, maybe this is your first Mother's Day without your mom here. Uh, maybe it's because uh, you're a single mom and the reality is you don't really get to pause long enough to be celebrated. Or maybe it's because you have a really, really fractured relationship with your mom. And so while it's a really, really beautiful day and Hallmark did a good job of selling lots of cards and coming up with some clever ways to celebrate in many ways, what it does is it just, it highlights um, the sadness that can come. And so just really do want to pause for a second and go, really, really sorry for many of you. Some of you are trying to celebrate Mother's Day and have a child that's no longer here. And it just highlights the reality that while you're still a mom, part of that mothering instinct doesn't even get to play out anymore as a result. And so um, what we find in scriptures and psychology is that um, Bible would tell us as well, all sorts of stuff would say that there is no healing without grieving, and you can't grieve alone, and so just know this is a safe place for you. Um, really, if you just need to pause and not pay attention to anything I say today, that's quite all right. But know that you're loved and cared for and supported regardless of what this day does for you, whether or not it triggers something painful or um, triggers something that's really, really exciting. Uh, the Bible tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice. So if this is a day of rejoicing, we're rejoicing with you. And the Bible also says to mourn with those who mourn. And just know we're mourning with you. And so it's a complicated day for someone who brings life into this world and all the complications that come with that, right? Which does lead to kind of the conversation today, which is, you ever thought about that, like, why it's so painful, and why we have all these emotions, and why this is such a complicated day. Like, if you ever pause long enough, don't want to dig into all your emotions and all those things, but um, have you thought about why it's so messy? Like, why people have fractured relationships with their mothers? Why sometimes children die before their moms do? Why we have this great relationship with their mom, and at some point, that earthly connection will end for all of us? Like, you ever thought about, like, why that's so painful? Even this, have you ever thought about why it's so complicated even to bring life into this world. Like, I usually joke, and today won't be, sorry, this is a pretty heavy topic, so I won't do a lot of joking today, and this is kind of a two-part message, so I really would encourage you to come back. We're not going to put a bow on everything today. It'd be really, really exciting uh, next week. Can't wait to do that. But I usually joke about, you know, ah, the Bible says that there'll be pain in childbirth, but I've been in the room, and it's not that painful. That's just not true. And it is, it's warfare, if you've been in the room, I mean, it, it's overwhelming. The pain and 
the blood and guts and everything else that comes out of the body. And it's, I mean, it's really overwhelming. Nobody prepares you for that, or not me for that. I mean, I think we were supposed to watch some show or some video during our birthing classes, but I strategically made sure someone else's head was in front of me when that TV was playing. Didn't want to see all that stuff, but, but it's warfare. I mean, that's not a joke. I mean, what the damage it does to a human body, right? I mean, some of your moms are still feeling even the anguish of that, right? And so when we think about that, have you ever thought about, man, that is so broken and so painful, and this thing that brings life into the world is warfare. And so you see that, and thought, why in the world, and if we're so evolved and have come up with so many good plans on so many different things, why that's still the case, right? And so even this idea of what motherhood looks like, and, and I, I have a real compassion for moms, particularly those of you who do the whole parenting thing by yourself. Like, I, I, I watch my kids um, on Friday mornings um, for a couple hours while my wife goes to a Bible study because we're a really godly family. Um, and literally, like, she says she'll be home at 11. By, like, 11.03, if she's not there, like, I'm, I'm making plans to just l- abandon all my kids. <laughs> so I'm like, Julie, you said 11. It's 11.03. You better get home because I've watched these kids for almost two hours. <laughs> right? And I don't get paid for this. It's so ridiculous. It's babysitting without pay. But, right? So I just have this real compassion for just the, just the complications of all this stuff. And we just have to acknowledge that it really is complicated. It's really, really complicated. And so if you pause for a second and go, why in the world is it this way? Like, why is there so much pain in motherhood? More than any other, other role in the history of the world, right? There is no role that feels that kind of pain for that long than moms. So you go, well, why in the world is that the case? Like, why in the world is this so broken? And why can't life just be a little simpler and not so overwhelming? And um, here's kind of the big idea that I want you to hear today, and it's going to take me a while to work through it. There's actually a reason for this, and it's not going to sound very comforting, but we'll get there, I promise. Um, by the way, I'm going I'm to make a lot of statements today. We're going to talk about sexuality. We're going to talk about uh, gender identity. So got some kiddos. You're nervous about that. We've got great kids ministry. We've got a great lobby out. You want to slide out at some point, completely understand that. Um, but I'm going to make some statements, and I'm just going to request of you that you don't amen to these statements, okay? As we work through some of these things, these are not Bible darts. These are not, you know, opportunities for us to feel good about our point or our beliefs. This is, we're going to talk about it with lots of compassion, and even though you would say amen in a, in a way that would, you would think would be encouraging as you're saying that, someone else is hearing it from a different perspective, so we're just going to be really, really gracious and kind and all this. But here's the big idea. The world we currently live in is not the world that God designed. The world that we're operating in with this pain of childbirth, this pain in relationships, this world that we operate in is not in the way, this is not the way that God originally designed this world. It is broken and it is messy and this was not God's original design. So what we're going to do today and then next week and, you know, kind of we're going to go back to go, okay, what is his original design? And let's figure out how the world was supposed to be and then acknowledge that the world's not that way and then respond, figure out a way to respond as a result of um, the disparity between the world God designed and the world that we live in. Okay, so that's kind of the, the goal today. And uh, so what we've been doing, started last week, going to do it again today is just we're going to start back at the beginning big premise last week was if we can at least acknowledge that this world was 
intelligently designed, right? If you think about it, really simple. Whenever you see something that's beautifully designed, whether that's a car, whether that's a shirt, whether that's uh, a big skyscraper, whether it's a Lego building, whatever you got, right? Whatever you go, that's beautiful, that's nice. What usually happens the minute you see it is you go, wow, someone incredible designed that, right? So when you see a beautiful design, you give credit to the designer in every category except for this beautiful world we live in. And we go, nope, that must have just come from nowhere, right? And so, in fact, the more elaborate, the more complex the design, uh, the more impressed we are with the designer, right? And yet we live in a world where we breathe out carbon dioxide, plants suck that in and create some oxygen and put it back on us and give us life, right? Literally in breathing, there's life. We right now are moving at a crazy speed and in circles around some big ball of gas that's on fire somewhere way out in the distance, right? We go, oh, that's just interesting, but don't want to give credit to a designer. So if we can at least pause for a second and go, the best possible explanation for all this, not that it makes sense on every level, but the best possible explanation for nothing turning into something, right? That's, that's where we get to no matter what, what way we trace it down. There is nothing and then there is something. And the best possible explanation, best possible explanation, is that there had to be something before that nothing. And if that's the case, can we explain that something? And we're going, no, that's a little bit beyond our, our, our categories that we have in our head. And we would go, well, that's where God exists. The best possible explanation that there is nothing and there was something was that there would have been a creator to create it, right? So even the greatest scientists, the ones who have studied all this stuff, all kind of shrugged their shoulders of going, we don't know how the Big Bang happened. We don't know where those things came from, right? And so the, the best possible explanation, if you don't believe any of the Christian stuff, any of the other stuff, to at least say there must be some kind of creator who creates. And so once you get there, right? Once you get there, you go, if there's a creator who creates, then we got to start asking the questions, why in the world would a creator create? And there's some pretty interesting explanations in the scriptures. One is because uh, the creator wanted us to marvel at his design. The same reason artists like to create. There's something in them that wants to paint something, but they also enjoy uh, having someone marvel at the beauty of it. So one reason that people, uh, creators create is so that someone can marvel at the design. So God can be worshipped, is what he'd say. So he created all this to declare his own glory, right? You know, but that's not the only reason a creator would create. I mean, we talk about it all the time, and like the same reason parents decide to have kiddos. It's not because we thought life would get easier, but at some point we longed for the desire to be in a relationship with our child, right? Some of you on Mother's Day do not have that relationship with your child, whether it's because they're wayward, whether, not, whether it's because there's some kind of conflict early on, or whether it's because of death. And that pain and that sorrow is very real to you. Why? Because you long, you created for that relationship. And so if that's the case, then perhaps the reason the creator would create us, one, is so we'd marvel at his design, and two, so that we would be in a relationship with him. And next week, we'll talk about why that got severed, and we'll see the results of that and be really, really important for us to kind of work through. But those are the two premises of going, well, if there's a creator and he creates, it's probably so that we can marvel at his design. Let's enjoy that. That's actually what recreation is, by the way, to recreate. Recreate is to recreate, to go out and live in the creation of this world and celebrate the uh, creation of this world. And so you got that piece. And the other one is because God actually wants you to be in relationship with him. And in the beginning, it was that way. So last week we looked at the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we walked through Genesis chapter 1. And basically the pattern is this. God created, and then he declared it good. God created, and then he declared it good. And you're going, God sounds like he's a little bit stuck on himself and into himself. He is. 
He really is pretty impressed by himself. And he's allowed to be because he's perfect, right? We don't like people who are prideful and arrogant and believe that they're really special because you go, ah, deep down, there's some really dark secrets. And when those come out, you're gonna, people are going to laugh at you, whatever that is, right? But with God, he's, he would create something and he would declare right afterwards it was really good. And day after day after day, that was his declaration, right? Day after day, he set the world in motion. We talked about kind of the belief that it could be literal, maybe it's not. Worked through all that. You can go back and listen to the sermon from last week. Don't have time to cover that. But then now, on day six, what happens is God creates all of creation, and then at the apex, or the pinnacle of his creation, he creates man, right? He creates human beings. It says, in his own image. And so if you look at this, the first five days, God is preparing this world for the, the, the pinnacle, the apex of his creation, which is human beings, right? So God creates humans to marvel at his design and to be in a relationship with him. And so kind of briefly, it talks about it in Genesis chapter 1, and God made land animals and humans, right? Got that? And then I continue to say it was good. And then on day 7, uh, God rested. That's what we get at the end of chapter 1. And then uh, we get from the writer Moses a very um, more explicit uh, picture of uh, God's apex or pinnacle of creation, which is human beings. And so we're, uh, we're just going to read it. And so, and then we're going to make lots of observations about it. So that'll, that's how it works today. So the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, that's the second chapter of Genesis. It starts with uh, the author Moses writing on behalf of God, telling us what the Garden of Eden looks like, right? Remember, designer creates beautiful things and wants to be marveled at the design, right? So the first 14 verses are just all about Eden, the rivers running through it, all that kind of stuff. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we then get kind of the, the story of human beings. And so I'm going to read it verse by verse, and then we'll talk about it as we go. And so now we know that Adam's alive. His name, that's the first man. And um, this, the reality of it, and you go, well, I'm not sure I believe that. Okay, stay with us. Still worth your time. What we would all acknowledge is we all came from a mom somewhere who came from a mom somewhere who came from a mom somewhere who came from a mom somewhere. Even in science would say there, are, there is, if there's not Adam and Eve, there is a first Adam and a first Eve. There is a first man. There is a first woman that begins this whole process. And so Bible tells us that's Adam. And so Adam is now in the garden. He's been created as a grown man, really confusing. So he shows up as a grown man and God can talk to him. That's really, really amazing. They're in a relationship. And this is what it said. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So in God's original design, there he is in the garden, enjoying the garden, and he's working. So work was a part of the original design. And we find later in chapter 3 that work becomes uh, laborious and not as fun. So if you don't like your job, if it annoys you sometimes, that's actually a result of the fall. We'll talk about that next week. But what we see in the beginning, part of God's original design was to enjoy all of creation and work. So part of our job as men would be to work, part of it from the very beginning. And the Lord God commanded the man. They're talking here, right? There's some stuff there. You are free to eat from any tree in the, jo- uh, in the garden. So he got two things. He got, he's got a job and he's got a focus, right? You work and you enjoy. You eat, you drink, and you're merry. You work the garden, you'll enjoy that, and then you eat all the stuff, right? All available to him. So we got this perfect world. Adam's in it, and he is there in this perfect world. He's working, and he gets to eat whatever he wants to. So got a job, got a focus. It's a perfect life. Verse 17. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Okay? This is a really complicated verse, and 
be honest with you, a lot of us have a bunch of hang-ups on this, so we're going to talk about it for a few minutes. So what we have, God says, here's Adam, he's here, he lives in the garden, enjoys the garden, and I understand it really does feel a little bit like uh, folklore or myths or legend, like, oh, that's a cute story, but it's really weird, right? You get just one man in the garden working and eating fruit, right? That's it, enjoying all those things. You're like, that sounds a little strange, especially when you get to the next verse and it says, you can have all this, but don't have that, Right? Hey, guys, for the next 30 seconds, do not look at my left hand. Stop. Stop, right? I told you not to look at it, right? You see, there's just this reality that the minute we talk about not doing something, it's almost like instinctively we want to do it. You know, you even use the idea of reverse psychology to manipulate your kids because they're really good parents, right? So I don't want you to go to sleep right now. Fine, I will. You know, like there's just this thing. The minute it comes out in front of us, all of a sudden, we want to do the thing that we didn't even know we wanted to do. I didn't know I wanted to do that. I had no idea. I don't even like that type of fruit. But now that you said I can't eat it, right? So a lot of us have this huge hang-up with this God who says, hey, enjoy all this, but you can't have this, nana nana boo boo right? And so we have this picture of God, and we're going, see, that's just messed up. So did God not think they'd eat the fruit? I mean, isn't it God's fault? Didn't he wreck this whole thing? Because if you know the story, they eat it, and it goes bad. We'll talk about that next week. It'll be worth your time. But in this picture, you go, well... Did God really not think that they were going to eat the fruit? Did he? So there's a couple things we've got to talk about here, and, and, and there's two things that are really important for you to understand. God is all-knowing. Sometimes he decides to live in the, the, the present moment, but he can see all future things, see all future things. He, he is fully aware of everything. He is, he's outside of our time, meaning he's in every part of it. So he is all-knowing, so yes, he was aware and would be aware that they were going to eat the fruit. Okay? Part of it. It's part of it. So, did God cause them to eat the fruit? Nope, they made a choice. But if God wouldn't have put the fruit there, would they have eaten it? Well, no, it wouldn't have been there to eat. So, understand that, right? So, God, God is in many ways responsible for this fruit in the garden and aware of what it will do to people. So, you have to go, well, why does he put it in the garden then, right? Well, we get some insight to this when you uh, see later um, when uh, the Israelites, as God's chosen people, are trying to figure out how to please God. They're like, God, you seem so far. Can you give us, uh, would you give us some rules so we know how to follow you? And so God gives them lots of rules, but some of the rules you're aware of them, they're still all over our country, the Ten Commandments, right? But what we understand about the Ten Commandments, Jesus actually clarifies this for us, is that while they are a good framework for us to live in, God's plan wasn't to go, see, if you follow these, you can be like me. His plan wasn't to tell you to follow the rules so that he'd be happy with you. The reason he gives us those commandments is actually to help us understand that we can't follow them. So in many ways, God gives us these rules, and every time he gave them the rules in the Old Testament, the arrogance of the people will go, great, we'll always follow these. Surely we'll follow every single one. And with minute, within minutes or days, they stop following them. In other words, every time there is a rule that shows up, the goal isn't just to follow the rules. It's actually to help us understand that we can't follow the rules, right? So when we talk about the Ten Commandments, the way that we would talk about it, and we describe it here, is um, like an MRI, right? It's something that you lay your body in and it reveals that something's wrong. You know, an MRI doesn't fix you. You can't follow, you, that, you don't go in and all of a sudden it zaps whatever's wrong with your body, but it helps you understand that there is something wrong with your body if there's something wrong with your body. So the way that the Ten Commandments should be viewed is going, look, when you try to follow these, what you realize is you can't follow them. The nice thing is if you're not a Christian and you're in this room, let me just be really clear to you. The one thing we all have in common is we are not as good of people as we want you to think we are. Every single human being in this room cannot follow their own rules, much less follow God's. Every single one of us have made commitments this year, this month, and this week that we did not keep. 
That's every single one of us. All of us are broken beyond our ability to fix ourselves. And so the idea of the Ten Commandments is to put us in an MRI and go, let me show you that there is a growth inside of you that's going to lead to your death if you don't do something about it. So the idea of the Ten Commandments is helping us understand that something's got to fix us and it's beyond us. So the idea of the Ten Commandments is to convince us that we need help and something else has to fix us. So the idea of the Ten Commandments is to point us to the only thing that can fix us, which is Jesus. So when you look at the Ten Commandments, when you look at rules, uh, while they are good framework, good guidelines, the reality is we will not follow them perfectly. And when we don't, we go, gosh, we can't fix ourselves. Can anybody fix us? And that's where we point to Jesus, or we look to Jesus. So if that's the case about the Ten Commandments, it would make sense to be the case about the, the fruit in the garden. So God puts in there, knowing we're probably going to eat it, to show us as quick as possible how disobedient and how much we can't fix ourselves, how much we can't operate our lives, and how much we need a Savior. So the point of the fruit in the garden, first and foremost, would be to point us to the fact that we need a Savior. But that's not the only reason. Again, this is my opinion here, but I think this is accurate, so I'm not reading this in the Bible. I'm just going to share it with you. I do think there's another piece that we've got to talk about in terms of why the fruit would be there. Remember, it's before the Zion gets broken. So this is when good things are still good, right? And so you go, if that's the case, God actually, in its original framework, wanted Adam to enjoy the garden, wanted him to work, and wanted him to enjoy all that life, and he wanted him not to eat from the fruit. That's why he put it there. Now, he knows he's going to, but he wanted him not to. And you go, why does he want him not to? And here's the best possible explanation I can give you there. It's because God, in our original design— in our original construct, in the way that he designed the world, there is something that God believes is good for us in obedience. That our best life and enjoying our life actually means we obey God. So Adam and eventually Eve, who show up in the garden, their best life always happens when they follow God's word, right? So the, the fruit, one, shows them that, man, we're going to mess it up. But the second piece is going, there is something about obeying God that's good for you and me. There's something about that that actually makes life better. And I say it all the time. There's never been a time in my life that I've regretted doing what this book says. Never. I mean, I'm talking about 38 years of life and I have lots of regrets, lots of dumb decisions, but never, ever have I ever regretted following God's rules. In other words, the best life for us is in obedience. Now, we don't necessarily buy that, and that's really hard for us because we like to be Lord of our own life and uh, you know, say, yeah, I don't want, I, nobody tells me what to do. And I get that and we all struggle with it. But the reality is what this is showing us in the garden is one, God is going to go ahead and play the tape forward, allow them to eat the fruit and allow them to realize they need, they need some covering and protection and they need a savior, right? So you got that piece. But the other piece is before all that happens, God is basically saying, your life can be good, but in order for it to be the way that it was designed to fully live the life that you were designed to live, it actually comes from a place of obedience. So we go, God, we trust your word. We trust your ways more than our ways. And so there it is in the garden. And he says, you certainly will not die. Next week, you'll see that they do actually die and have to work through that. But now verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Okay. So you got a lot going on here. So remember, God over and over again makes design and says, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. This is the first negative thing that happens in the Bible. God designs all things, and in a moment he says, it is not good. First time you see it, right? So he has Adam in the garden. He's working. He's got the rules. He understands all stuff. And then he looks at him and says two things. One, it's not good for man to be alone. This is really important for you to hear. Because if you grew up in the fundamental church world that I grew up in, what I was told is, obey the rules, obey the rules, obey the rules, and Jesus is enough. Obey the rules, obey the rules, obey the rules, and Jesus is enough. Well, the reality is, uh, obeying the rules doesn't get us saved. And you, we'll, we'll work through that in a while. And the other one is, 
literally God, this is so interesting to me, is literally telling us he is not enough. He is not enough. Now, he'll save you, yes, but he has somehow created us and wired us to be in relationships, right? So this idea that you can do life all by yourself, that is not true. You don't just need God. You need God and community around you. And so we go, okay, what does that community look like? Right now we're about to see the first marriage. Really interesting to talk about. But what he actually says is it's not good. And then he tells us what would be good. And here's what he says. He says, um, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now that word helper, if you grew up in church or not in church, you're like, ah, oh, that's where it is. People beat that over the women going, no, your job's to help. You just help. You just help. By that, I mean, make me a sandwich, right? <laughs> hey, it says it right here. Helpful or suitable. I can't make sandwiches. I don't even know how. Like, you're really good at cutting it and that triangle. I can't do the triangle. So would you just make me a sandwich? Like, so people use this as this idea that helping is just, okay, that's the woman's job just to help, which means pick up my mess that I leave, right? I'm not good at those things. I can't quite make it in the hamper. I can get about two feet around it, though. Same thing, close enough, right? Just a little flick, right? So, you know, we got this. So we've got to work through this word, and there's two things we've got to see is there's two words here. Helper, that's suitable. Helper, suitable. So let me start with the helper piece. What's interesting is that Hebrew word, what he's saying here, it shows up in the Bible in lots of other places, but in just about every other place it shows up, it's a military term. It means to send in reinforcements. So imagine this, you, moms, uh, women, you're going to like this, right? So it literally means, hey, a guy is in a battle, the army's in a battle, and they are losing their men, and they are going to lose this battle unless we spend, send in the special forces, right? So this word helper literally means to send in reinforcements because if something doesn't show up, it's going to end badly. So, you know, there's a war going on, and then the, <coughs> sorry, the general goes, hey, we got to send in the rest of the folks because if not, this, these, this, we're going to lose. So that word helper literally means, it's a military term to mean reinforcements. Got it? Now the word suitable there in, in terms of its definition is really interesting because it's, uh, it's a, maybe you won't like this term, but stay with me until I get to the end of it. Um, it's a complementary term. And what it actually, in, it, in this direct translation, literally means the opposite of. The opposite of. So when it says, we got to find a suitable helper, it means we need to send in the reinforcements because this isn't good. And the reinforcements we need need to be the opposite of what we currently have. Right? The way that we're fighting this battle, the way we're trying to do it, isn't working out well by itself. So we have to send in the opposite of what's already there for, um, for reinforcements, for help. Right? So you got this piece, which is really interesting because if you look throughout scriptures, what God continues to do is he takes all these different things and he distincts, makes them distinct, right? Heaven, earth, makes them distinct, right? Land animals, water animals, distinct. You know, water, ground, distinct. So he takes what would be whole, all of this, and he starts to make distinguishing pieces of going this and this, this is how they fit together, right? So the whole idea we see here is God is about to create two human beings, a male and a female, and what's really, really interesting about them is they are the opposite of, and they're distinct. Now, in God's original wiring, this is beautiful. This is beautiful, because these two folks worked well together. They complement each other, and God has a plan that wires that in God's original design. Now, you take God out of it, and you know why marriage is so hard. Because all you do is you butt heads. The very things that are supposed to help 
complement and complete and all those things actually create this really different thing. Remember, you've got reinforcements. This is a military term. So now you've got two people at war. They're supposed to be fighting a war together, but now you've got it here because they're exact opposites. This person doesn't understand why this person does it this way, and this person doesn't understand why this person does it this way. So you can understand in this why uh, marriage can be really complicated, but that's not this week. That's next week, but that's the picture of what we have there. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. So Adam's got a job. He names animals. Sounds like a lot of fun. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. That's so funny. So, that's, so the man gave, like, you see this, you're like, you know, like, it's not like a necessary job. Like, God's just being nice. Okay, Adam, you, it's not good for men to be bored. Okay, so here you go. I don't know, name the animals. That's an elephant, right? Yep, there you go. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. Now, remember this. And God's going to say it again. So he says, he recognizes that's not good for man to be alone. Oh, here's a job. Maybe this will keep him occupied. And then at the end of it, he says it again. But for Adam, no suitable, the opposite of, helper, reinforcements, was found, right? No animal could complete Adam, right? So that wasn't there. So again, we see it, opposite helper, need the reinforcements. That's actually where we're wired. This is before any of this stuff goes bad. This was in God's original design. Uh, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into sleep, a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So I grew up in this really messed up fundamental world. I remember a preacher once telling me a couple of weird things, but one of the things he said is, very specifically, I mean, I probably was 10 or 11. It was at a revival, you know, and that's where you go to church every single night. So much fun. And, um, and so one, in one of the revivals, this guy was explaining this story, and he's like, and that's why to this day men have one less rib than women do. And I was going, oh, that's really interesting. Um, and then, I don't know, I was a pastor, been a pastor for a while, five years into planning churches, and one week I decided to point that out. Hey, by the way, guys, this is really neat. You men, you have one less rib than women. And everybody, I saw people doing this. I'm like, God, they're actually believing me. This is really neat. And afterwards, my wife, who um, studied science, was a science teacher, still is a science teacher, but uh, has her kids at home now. And she pulled me aside and very graciously is going, you know that's not true, right? And I was like, no, it is true. And I started counting. And I, I was like, here, let me count you. <laughs> 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 so... It's not true. We have the same amount of ribs. So you go, why is it a rib? Why is it a rib, right? So a couple of things, a couple of things to point out. One, um, ribs have a pretty uh, important job. One, they provide stability, and uh, they protect two important organs, your heart and your lungs, meaning your life and the way you breathe. Breath is very important. In scriptures, you see in the beginning, there was a man who was dead in the way that he comes alive. It's in the very beginning as God breathes into him. And so what you see here is, in some ways, and this is just my opinion here, that you have a rib, a mean, meaning that this guy becomes vulnerable in his breath, vulnerable in his stability, and vulnerable in his heart by actually removing part of that and making that more accessible. Now, that's cute. Don't know if that's true or not. But the thing that is interesting about this is that word rib is actually translated throughout the scriptures, as, it's even in military terms, and not as rib, but as side. So here it's rib, and it makes sense because God's going to actually use this for the molecular 
you know, chemistry of it and develop a woman out of it. But in this deal, what we're really seeing is God actually create another out of the side of man. Notice it's not the front, not the back. You know, when I was ordained in that fundamental Baptist world, I remember they had me kneel down and everybody in the whole church came and prayed over me. And I remember the pastor really, really saying, hey, what we do is we have the, the, the man kneel down and we put the woman behind her him because behind every good man is a good woman or something like that and I mean it was nice but still this idea that it's the man who's out front the woman stands behind and you know picks up the mess and the reality here is what you see is that God is making a suitable helper out of the side meaning as a partner out of the hip you know so two people one flesh really interesting there and so you got that stuff and then the man responds. This is really interesting. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So remember, he, he, um, he uh, names everything else in creation. And really what he says, woe man. And this isn't woe man. Like, that's a cute, funny thing. But it literally means the opposite of man. Again, you see this opposite. And it's, um, in its primal explanation, the way that man can be described in the Hebrew is piercing one, okay? And the way that woman is described and can be uh, translated as pierced one. I'm sorry, I forgot the whiteboard. It's in the back. I was going to draw you pictures of what that means, but I think we're going to have pierced one, piercing one, pretty interesting thing. So you got man, you got woman, and they are the opposite of distinctly different coming to be united. So he names her the opposite of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. That doesn't mean they get in the same body. That word flesh means they occupy the same space. Again, in God's original design, that's really neat, but you take two opposites and make, make them live in the same space, and you have what we have, right? So in this original design, he takes two distinctly different people and makes them occupy the same space, have the same mission, have the same vision, have the same purpose. So two distinctly different people become one in terms of all those things. And remember, this is important. It's distinctly different. The, the, what God's showing us here is unity. You can't have unity from sameness. We'll talk about that in just a second. But distinctly different. And it says this. Really, really important. Adam and his wife. Notice she doesn't have a name yet. Eve will show up next chapter. Um, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Which is interesting that, that you'd think that the Bible wants to clarify that, but if you think about our bodies and how much shame they cause us to feel, right? It's, ba- uh, it's bathing suit season. Don't you love putting those things on for the first time? Doesn't matter how fit you are. Doesn't matter at all, right? It's uncomfortable, right? There's just something about what our body does to us. And if you don't believe it, here's what I'd just say. Tomorrow morning, get naked and do all your workout in your bedroom, just naked. Do your jumping jacks, push-ups, just do that. See how that makes you feel, right? <laughs> Tell you, there's just something about the weirdness of our body that require, now leads us to some shame, but in the beginning, it wasn't the case. You got Adam, you got Eve, they're naked, and life is good, okay? So what we see here in the original design is God made uniquely different people, and so he creates three different categories. First, he creates humans, as opposite, male and female, and shows how they should work together, both uh, collectively and with God. So first and foremost, God creates and shows us how that inner workings work. God was there. They hung out. He realized that we needed both a vertical relationship with him, horizontal relationships with one another. So first, God creates humans and shows us how they um, work out. Then the second thing God's going to create is marriage. So marriage is distinctly different people coming together for a couple of purposes, right? Uh, One would be pleasure. Um, 
but not, not the most important. Another one would be procreation. One of the interesting things, even if we don't like gender talking about and don't like, we feel uncomfortable talking about sexuality, the reality is every single person in this room is here right now because at some point, two people that were opposite decided to become one flesh. You follow me? Every single one of us. We think, oh, we can't talk about that. That's so uncomfortable. Yet all of us are living and breathing as a result of a, a distinctly male and a distinct female joining together, whether physically or through IVF or whatever it is, distinctly male, distinctly female, and all of a sudden we have this. So what you see in God's original design, you have human beings, then you have marriage, and then you have family. The way in which God planned for all this to happen was by humans that were opposite, connecting together into a marriage, and then having family. Now, that was God's original design. Now, you look at our world, and it's not that way, right? In fact, right now, uh, it's just as likely for a kid not to have a mom and dad both in their home. And this, listen, this isn't judgment. This isn't judgment at all. It's just going, can we acknowledge that what this was in the Bible is not what it is now? And even uh, sociologists and psychologists would argue, for the most part, that the best upbringing would be for parents to both be in the home. Now, there's some conversations about whether those need to be male or female, if they can be same, or if they need to be different. But to have opposites, raising a child in some way, opposites in whatever that category, seems to be an appropriate fit. Now, here's what I'd tell you. If you have a single mom, what would you have her do other than Give her kid the very best life she can, and there is no judgment for it. If you have a single dad, what would you have him do? Say, well, that's not right. Shame on you. No, you go, boy, I can't imagine that. And all of us in so many ways are operating in a broken world, not the world God designed, but the world that we live in. And so we just have to acknowledge that there are adaptations all the time. When I hear about divorce and hear about kids going back and forth from homes, it's just going, boy, I don't think this is the way God designed. But the reality is this is the world, and so let's figure out how to adapt accordingly. And so what continues to happen is we continue to adapt in a really, really complicated world. And what happens for us as Christians, we go, well, how do we respond to all those things? So um, if you're a Christian, I'm going to talk to you for a second. If you're not a Christian, I think this will be a really good time for you to eavesdrop, okay? So I'm just going to share really, really candidly about why this is complicated. It'll take us about 10 minutes, not a really long time here. Why this is complicated and how we should respond. Now, here is first and foremost what all of us have to understand, okay? If someone is not a Christian, doesn't have Jesus living in them, the most inappropriate thing we could ever do is to demand someone to live like they do, right? To tell someone who doesn't believe in this worldview, who doesn't have the Savior of the world living in them and guiding them, to tell them they better behave like they do is really, really inappropriate. That's the opposite of the gospel, right? That's the complete opposite of it. So we can have zero expectations of anyone in this world who does not live with Jesus and go, I believe Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is not Lord of their life, there should be no evidence that they would live in a way that he is, so for us to hold up signs and tell people that they should change their sexual identity, change their behavior, all those things, that would be dangerous of us. Now, I understand about abortion. That's a different conversation we'll have later about life, not today. But when I'm talking about demanding that someone who struggles with same-sex attraction or same-sex behavior, that tell them they should behave differently just because, we, because it's in the Bible, doesn't help anything. So there's got to be an expectation for those of us who follow Jesus that we live like it and believe this is true. If they do not follow Jesus, we should have zero expectations of them, okay? So let's talk a little bit about the kind of the, the wrestling of these different things. Now, as it relates to marriage, particularly about sexuality, one of the big, you know, hot button issues is on, um, 
on whether or not gay people should be able to be married and all that kind of stuff, and we will talk about it, okay? But before we get there, we've got to talk about the other hot-button issue that's more of a hot topic now, which is gender identity. So this is where you would take your Bible darts and go, see, see, Bible says male and female. There's only two options. That's how it was originally designed. Remember, the world that we now live in is not the one that God originally designed. It's broken. It's flawed. And nobody has to argue that. Now, the only way you can still create a baby is with these two sexes, male and female. Now, a couple things that you got to understand, what's kind of evolved and kind of always been the case, but really, really kind of been highlighted over the last, uh, since the 90s, probably, last 20, 20, 30 years. You have, um, you have nailed two different terms, and you're going to go, no, there's not two different terms, but there's two different terms that people are using, and so we should respect them and understand them. The first one is now sex, okay? Sex not as, not as the verb, but as the noun, you follow me? That is the, the, uh, a person's genitalia. That's their, you know, their biological framework, their sex. You only got two sets, of, I mean, for the most part, now I'm talking in general terms, two different sets of chromosomes, you know, you got X, Y, X, you know, that kind of deal, and so you got that piece, and so that is biological sex. Um, that is male and female. Those are the two options. Pierced one, piercing one, right? So you got those things. That's sex, and um, what it's looking like is that is determined in the first trimester, right? You w- can't wait till 14 weeks to figure out what it is, so you can do that weird gender reveal thing. When, I was, when we were having kids, we didn't get to do gender reveals, but we also didn't get to do promposals. It's not fair. So anyway, so you got exact, you know, so in that first trimester, those things happen. Now, after that first trimester, um, they, there's a, some good information that's now going, gender is starting to be determined. That's different in our world. Sex and gender are different. Sex, we'd say, is biological. Gender, the term that's being used, is cultural. And some of that starts to be shaped in second and third trimester and continues to be shaped outside the womb, right? So now you have people going, well, I'm just going to let my kid determine its gender, and you have all sorts of judgments for it, and I understand, because you go, well, if my kid, as as a four-year-old, says that he's an elephant, I'm going, you're not an elephant, you know? Like, no matter how much you want to say you're an elephant, you're not. But here's the reality, and it's really easy for us to think black and white. When this is the case, and we go, no, there's not two different categories, sex and gender, they're the same, you're either male or female, pierced one, piercing one, that's just how it works. Well, here's what I've discovered. When you interact with people that have a biological sex and then they have a different framework for their gender, when they look in the mirror, they could be biologically male and think they're a female. They literally are staring in the mirror. And no matter what you tell them, how much you try to convince them, draw them pictures, pray over them, anoint them with oil, they still look and feel the opposite of what their biological sex is. Now, can you imagine what that experience has to be for someone? For your body to be clearly one thing and your brain to be telling you something else. Now, it's real easy for us to go, that's just stupid. But could we have some compassion around here? Because in this area, you can interview thousands and thousands of transgender people. And you know what they'll tell you? They don't wish it was this way. They wish that their biological sex matches their, their gender in their terms, right? I mean, this is really painful. In fact, what would happen here when they say they don't wish it, they wish it weren't that way, what they're saying is, I wish I were, were designed differently. I wish I was back into an original design, and it is a place of deep pain. You want to follow suicide rates. You can look at this category of people, and you can have deep compassion for them. This isn't they're just perverse, They are going, I want to be what I want to be. Maybe there's some of that, but that is not the general rule of what we're dealing with here. We are dealing with something. What happened over the last couple of years that's really important 
is uh, there's a DSM, that's the psychological you know, manual on uh, disorders, those kind of things. Uh, for the longest time, up until about 2013-15, part of the DSM-4, this gender issue was called a gender identity disorder, GID, right? Gender identity disorder, meaning there is something wrong in this. By the way, up until 1973, uh, homosexuality was also in that category as a disorder. But what changed in 2014, they took it out of a disorder, and now they have a new term called gender dysphoria which means that's a reality, but there's nothing wrong with it. So when it was a disorder, you dealt with the disorder. Now that it's not a disorder, you go, no, that's just how people are. Then you just deal with the symptoms of it, which means let's help them with their shame. Let's help them with their guilt. But let's not tell them something needs to change. And the reality is it makes a little bit of sense of why they would do that because what do you change? You give them a new brain? So instead, what's happened is people have tried to get new parts. And the reality is that's not helping either. And what we just have to recognize is this is a place of deep pain, deep pain. So you need to have a lot of compassion. So how do you respond to people with your kids, all that kind of stuff? I'll tell you in just a second, but not yet. Okay. The second piece we got to deal with is now marriage. Not just gender, but marriage, male and female. And here's what I'd say. I don't think the church has any right to tell people who they should live with, whether or not they get health benefits or any of those kind of things. That's not our job. Now, what I am frustrated with is that the word marriage is now used in that context. I don't mind civil union. I'm upset with the church for giving away the term marriage. Because marriage in the beginning was distinctly male, distinctly female, with one purpose, together trying to live on this mission the way that it was originally designed. So how do we respond um, when people go, we, we deserve to get married, all those kind of things? We go, well, if you're not a Christian, we have no expectations of you. But if we're Christians and we actually believe there's an original design that pleases God and there's more life to be had and more life to live as a result of following him, then this is a place that we got to follow. So again, no expectations of the outside world, but there's three distinct purposes for marriage. One is pleasure. Sex is pleasurable. Two is procreation. But the third one, the most important one, is actually unity. God gives us a picture of his relationship with us. Remember, he distinctly separates things and gives us a picture. So he just takes us male and female and then joins us together to show us what unity is supposed to look like. Because one day he describes himself as the groom and us as the bride. And that's not about our biological sex. Right? That's about God taking people that are different, separate, other than him, and joining us together. So you can't get unity out of sameness. You get unity out of distinctly different. So the picture of marriage isn't about whether or not you get sexual fulfillment or whether or not you have a lifelong partner. Those are great things. But the picture of marriage is actually about God showing how distinctly other becomes unified. So as a church, we go, look, the world can do whatever it wants to. But if we're going to do this, and let's go back and go, this is the purpose, mutually uh, suitable, right? Helpful, suitable. So a helper, uh, bring in the reinforcements, that's suitable, meaning that's opposite. So there's something in that that we got to respond to. So in our world, we go, there's a couple things. We have no expectations of anyone else, but we have really high expectations of those who walk with Christ to go, let's live like we do. Because if the fruit in the garden is there for a reason, is to bring us joy, then it would make sense that we would submit ourselves to that kind of desire. So that's just kind of the issue, right? So we got to deal with those issues and come figure out how we respond to them. You go, well, that just doesn't seem fair. Because I do know people, and most of the people that I know in the homosexual category have friends in this area, talk to them, and there's two different things. There's same-sex behavior versus same-sex attraction, okay? Same-sex behavior is, um, is the act of homosexuality. Same-sex uh, attraction is something, uh, so you get two different categories. With a lot of people really, really struggle with it. And the reality is, most of the people you talk to wish they didn't. They wish they didn't. We're not attracted to someone of the same sex. It's not like you're going, I want to be defiant. We used to see it as this deviant act. 
But the reality is most folks who live in this world uh, would actually tell you, I wish, I wish I didn't feel this way. It'd make life a lot easier. In other words, I wish I was back in a different design, but there's something, something off here and I wish I could change it, but I can't. So you've got to have lots of compassion. You go, that's because that's just not fair and it's weird for me to talk about it because I'm attracted to my wife. And the world and the Bible both say that's okay. I get to have kids. The world and the Bible tell me that that's great. So my world is really simple. And now I'm preaching at people who don't have this world and say, get over it. But it's not get over it. It's going, let's find community and acknowledge that there's this brokenness in our world. A a good friend of ours uh, this week found out from the doctor that she has something that there is nothing that they can do to treat it. It's just a medical disorder that nothing they can do to treat it. Nothing. And I go, this is not the world that God designed. And yet, this is the world that we live in, and our options are either to quit, lose hope, or go, I am going to live the rest of my life with this limp, with this brokenness, and this pain, but it's just a part of the life that we live. And then we do it in community and go, yep, this isn't the world that God designed, but this is the world we live in, so how do we honor God with all of that, right? So here's what's interesting. As a result of the flawed world, there's four things that all of us do. So you can, be, you can struggle with gender, you can struggle with sexuality, or you can struggle with everything else. And there's four categories that we try to solve in terms of, okay, what's the fruit that we're going to eat that's going to make us feel better? Here's the four, and they kind of operate in order. The first one is ourselves. So whether that's gender, we try to change our gender, whether that's our looks, whether that's our resume, whether that's you know, how much education we have, whether that's we got to get our eyebrows waxed or threaded, whatever, whatever it is. We have all these different things that we think that thing's going to be the thing that's going to fix the thing. But here's the reality. Ten years ago, we also thought that ten years later, we'd be better like ourselves more if we did those things. Here we are ten years later. How do you feel about yourself? Was it enough to fix all your problems? Life feel much more pleasant, right? And what we discovered is inside of ourselves, there's nothing that we can do to fix all those things. So you got that one. Then the second one would be if once we find out that ourselves won't fix us, can't, sex change won't fix us, you know, uh, tummy tuck doesn't fix us, might make us feel better for a while, but it doesn't fix us. Then the next thing we do is we look for people. And we go, other people will fix us. So if that's sexuality, someone, some marriage would make me better. Now the reality is I've been married now 14 years. I'm not fixed. And my spouse didn't fix me. And it was inappropriate of me to put that pressure on her. And it's inappropriate of you to put that pressure on your kids. They are not your God. They will not solve your problems. And the minute that we look and go, okay, we can't fix this. It must be someone else. That doesn't fix us either. So the reality is whether you're gay or straight, the reality is a marriage, a relationship is not going to fix this thing. So now we've had some pretty good data as it relates to homosexual marriage. And the reality is the divorce rates are exactly the same as heterosexual ones right? Because those things don't fix us. They will leave us wanting. They will fail us. They are flawed as well. And so we could look for other people. That won't fix us. The next thing we do is we look at our culture. And we go, let's chase after something in our culture. And there are some great things in our culture. Sex is a part of our culture within the right construct. Marriage, right? Uh, Wine. Some of you like wine. That's not wrong. You can drink wine within the right constructs of what God designed, not in drunkenness, right? There are lots of things. Food is a great pleasure that God gives us, and we go, that feels good. But if you take it to the end without any constructs or any kind of parameters, that doesn't make you feel better. It makes you feel worse. So we look at all these things, and finally we go, those things don't fix us either. Every single thing is so messed up. That car that we bought, we think we thought would make us a better person. Do you understand that everything about that car will be in a landfill one day? But yet we still buy it. We are waiting for the next toy, the next gadget. And so what happens first, we look for ourselves. That doesn't fix us. Then we go to people. That doesn't fix us. So then we go for our objects and all the things of culture, and that doesn't fix us. So you know where we usually turn? To religion. Maybe if I meditate more, maybe if I pray more. And all religion is, so you understand. Religion is the same as number one, ourselves, just with a rosary or a choir robe. Right? It's still, religion is going, okay, if I perform these acts, if I obey all these things, is, uh, will that fix this? Will this fix it all? And it doesn't fix anything. 
It doesn't fix anything. It doesn't solve anything because this idea that we can perform well enough to make God happy with us or make ourselves happy with us, it just leaves us wanting and fails us too. So if that's the case, if we can't fix ourselves, if other people can't fix us, if the world can't occupy us enough to bring us joy and religion doesn't fix us, then what do we do? Which leads me to the last part, which is what do you do if your kids are struggling with these things? So if they're struggling with gender identity, sexuality, any of those things, what do we do? How do we respond to it? All those kind of things. And the first thing I would say is model a life that's obedient to Christ. Because if that's where joy can come from, if we can model that, and they can see us live in the joy of trusting God with all of our things, trusting God with our lives, trusting God with our day off, trusting God with our money, and see the joy that should come from that, uh, then maybe that changes it. So first thing I would do is say, hey, Christians, let's actually model the original design. The second thing would be pray for your kids. Pray that, um, that they would understand that Jesus is enough, that the rest of those things won't fulfill them, won't save them, won't forgive them. Third thing is I pray that the Lord I wouldn't turn them over to their desires. So in Romans 1, you see this debauchery that happens. I'm not talking about sexuality. It, it does come up there. But this life where we think we just want these things and that would be it, eventually God goes, okay, have, have what you want. And he turns us over to our desires. So pray that God wouldn't turn them over to their desires. And then if he does, pray that they would get clarity really quick. Pray that they would discover very fast that their gender does not determine who they are in Christ. Pray that their same-sex attraction isn't the thing that solves all their problems, that Jesus can. That pray that when they discover one of those things, pray that that relationship, heterosexual relationship, won't save them, won't fix them. Pray that God, if they turn over to those desires, that they get clarity really fast. So pray that they would discover really fast. And the fourth thing is this is our, the last one's going, okay, what do we do? Like, what if our kids struggle with these things? Do we kick them out of our house? Do we tell them that they're not welcome around here until they change their behavior? Like all these kind of things. Remember, we can't have an expectation of someone who doesn't walk with the Lord to behave like they do. And there's this really neat passage that I just want to tell you about as the band comes up and prepares um, um, that I think describes how we as parents and we as friends and we as family respond to this issue. So it's uh, Luke chapter 15. There's something called the prodigal son. And basically the son says, Dad, my original design within the construct of our family doesn't fulfill me, but something out there will. So if you will give me the inheritance, I'll go chase after it and finally life will be good, right? So the, the dad graciously gives him his inheritance and he disappears, right? They didn't get kicked out of the house. He was welcome to stay, but he self-selected out of the house, which is some of our experience. And so he leaves and he goes and then he chases after all those things. You know, his own identity, his own pleasure, his own cultural stuff, and then his own behaviors and all these things. And none of those things solved it for him. And so what does he do? He returns home. You know what's crazy? When you see that God gives us a picture of who he is in this father, and in that picture what happens is when the son is off in the distance, what happens is the father sprints out there. There hasn't been repentance. There hasn't been anything. But the father sits waiting day after day for his son to come back. And what does he do? He embraces him. Long before he apologizes and those things, he embraces him in the middle of that and welcomes him home. So, got a kiddo in one of these situations, whether that has to do with sexuality or just, you know, agnosticism or whatever world it is, I just go, the best thing we can do is sit and wait and pray. And the minute we see that child turn back, greet them with love and affection right? And that picture shows us how we should respond to our God, like the son does, who returns home and goes, nothing else satisfied me. 
And so there's this neat idea. We're going to sing the song called The Stand, and then it goes, we'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned. You don't have to raise your hands. If you want to, you can. But I do love that picture of a hand raised. Because when you raise a hand, you've got a couple different things you're working on. One is, uh, sometimes you raise your hand because you ask a question. So in many ways, you're going, hey, God, uh, we're still trying to figure out all this. Would you be with us? Another reason you'd raise a hand is because you want to be picked up. This is how my kids greet me when I come home. Right? And so maybe that's it, going, God, I've tried to search for all these solutions and all this stuff, and it didn't fix me. So God, would you, would you pick me up? And the third one is, you raise your hand because you're surrendering. You're going, okay, God, these things haven't fixed me. These things haven't fixed my family. I am just going to submit all of it to you, and would you have your way? And so, as a result of all this, I'd just say the best posture is not trying to fix all your behaviors. The best posture is to give all those behaviors to God. And go, God, would you, would you fulfill me? Would you be enough for me? Would you save me? And so if you'd stand with me as the band leads us in the song and we close.